Hear the word of the Lord from Acts 2, through 47. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you are new here at the church, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here. Welcome you to a new year, a healthy practice for us as a church. In the beginning of a new year is to look back and to look back in thankfulness and gratitude to the Lord, but also to look forward. One of the things that you will pick up if you read the Bible is that God retells the same story over and over and over. After he delivered his people out of the Exodus, he retells that story over and over and over, reminding his people of his goodness. 
And so one of the things we want to do in the first of every single year is just remind our people, remind ourselves where we came from, how we got here. Now today also marks the 10-year anniversary of our first public worship gathering. So today marks 10 years that we've been in this building. We had our first gathering um, right here 10 years ago. Now, I'm going to tell us a little bit about where we came up from, where I came from. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. I loved God. I went to church camp. I was pretty much at church anytime the doors were open. I remember asking my parents just to leave me at church, me and my friends, in between services on Sunday so we could play flashlight tag on an empty church building. That was fun. But then some, uh, sometime during junior high, church stuff happened. Uh, if, you know, if you've been around a church long enough, you know people get hurt. Bad things happen often because it's full of sinners. And for some reasons, um, pretty good reasons at the time, my parents stopped going to that church. But the problem was we didn't find a new church. And it was right, I said, when I was in junior high. And that uh, was a problem for me because I, we never stop worshiping. Okay, we just worship different things. So I stopped worshiping God for a while. He was in the back of my head. I always believed in him, but I chose to worship pretty girls in sports for the next several years of my life. I looked to them for my identity, for my worth, for my happiness, for my popularity, all of those things. And it wasn't until um, late in my senior year of high school Actually, most of my hope and most of my identity was in my, uh, my wrestling ability. And at that time, I was ranked third in the state, and this was, I was playing football, and this is the last football game of the year. And we were in Burlington, I can still remember it, and I went down and made the tackle. And as I was making the tackle, I got leg whipped, if you know what that means, and popped my elbow and dislocated my elbow and tore some ligaments in there. And God used that situation to crush my dreams, right? To actually, what he did was he crushed my idols and took that away from me for a long time. And through that series of circumstances, he brought me back to himself. We ended up going back to a church. God ended up uh, moving back into my heart or moving into my heart or awakening or reawakening, whatever it was that he did to me. All of a sudden, something was different about me. Before this moment, my senior year of high school, uh, this this is not okay for my kids. I don't remember ever reading one book in my life, okay? I would read the first chapter. I would read a middle chapter. I would read the last chapter. I would write the book report, all right? That's how I did it. I did not read, and I had ADHD off the charts. Surprise, I know. But then, all of a sudden, I wanted to read the Bible, And I couldn't stop reading the Bible. And I would read the Bible and want more to read the Bible. And I didn't really care about wrestling that much anymore. I cared about reading the Bible. I didn't really care too much about weightlifting anymore. I wanted to read the Bible. Even girls got put on the sideline for a while. And I just wanted to read the Bible. God was awakening something in me. Now, because of my injury, it kept me local here. I didn't go off to a school like I planned to. I ended up going to Augustana College. And I wrestled there for a little while. But at that same time, I stayed plugged into my local church and God started speaking to me about my future. And I started sensing a call to full-time ministry. To make a long story short, over the next few years, I 
I began to sense this call. I also started a construction company. I was kind of build, I was building homes and doing that on the side. And then I was serving in my local church. I got the opportunity. I was probably 19, I got 18 or 19. I got the chance to preach at the, in the youth ministry. I, they brought me on as a director of operations for the youth ministry. We had a really large youth ministry, one of the largest in the, in the, in the, in the Midwest. That evolved into a junior high youth pastor role. And then eventually I was offered a youth pastor position at another church here in the Quad Cities. It was there that I was a youth pastor for seven years, which is where I met many of you at the same time. I was a wrestling coach, so a lot of people in this room, I either coached or they're a part of that youth ministry way back in the day. Um, we saw God do some remarkable things, bringing a lot of people who didn't know Jesus to faith in Him. Um, it was, it, that thing grew and it became one of the largest youth ministries in the Midwest. We saw one night, if you, we were preaching through the book of Acts one time. And if you know anything about the book of Acts, there's an Ethiopian eunuch there that comes to faith. And they say, well, he says, I want to get baptized. And they say, hey, there's water right there. And we say, well, let's do it. Let's just get baptized. And so one night in this youth ministry, we blew up an inflatable pool and we filled that thing up and we preached on that passage. And we said, all right, who's here who wants to get baptized? And 93 students got back. That water was disgusting by the end of the night. I was like moving, just keeping it moving so we couldn't tell. It was nasty, but it was a great move of God. And many people met Jesus through that youth ministry. But in 2009, I experienced the confluence of three things that brought about a great change in my life. First, I read Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. And that book was like a gateway drug into gospel-centered reform theology. And it really set me on fire for the glory of God and uh, the sovereignty of God. Really, the sovereignty of God is what really gripped my mind. But it also put me at odds with the church that I was serving at. The next thing that happened was I discovered the Acts 29 Church Planting Network and a group of men who were more mature than I was, who were well, better read than I was, who had better theology than I had, and they were preaching through the Bible expositionally, that means verse by verse, applying it to the current issues of the day and our human experience in a way that made the scriptures come alive. Now, I had never experienced this. Some of you come from a past where you had a pastor who preached expositionally. I had never experienced it. The only way I knew of pastors preaching was topical. We would do a topical series on money or a topical series on faith or whatever it was and have a little bit of Bible mixed in there. Now, Nearly every preacher I have ever heard or have ever met says things like, they preach the word. We just, we preach the word here in season and out of season. But most of the time in our culture today, preachers preach their own opinions and then sprinkle some Bible verses in there for good measure. These Acts 29 preachers, and there's a whole lot more out there, but these are the first ones I had ever found, preached long, you know, the, the culture was preaching like 20-minute sermons, and these guys are preaching 60-minute sermons full of exegesis and exposition of the Word of God, and it felt like for my soul that I was sinking my teeth into a T-bone steak for the first time. Sorry for all the vegans. It felt like, felt like a, just a great big old piece of tofu, okay? <laughs> for you, for the, for the vegans, for everybody else, steak, all right? Bone-in ribeye is what it felt like, all right? I don't want to you know, marginalize anybody for their diets in here. Third, because of those two events, 
right? I'm, I'm, I got this gateway into Reformed gospel-centered theology and at these Acts 29 network, these guys preaching long expositional sermons. I began to see some glaring weaknesses in my own discipleship, in my own soul, in my own ministry, and the church where I was serving. We were doing a pretty good job of gathering a crowd, entertaining Christians for a little bit of time, even presenting the gospel to outsiders and unbelievers, but we were not doing a very good job of making disciples. And I discovered that the church was actually, the, the, the number one thing a church is supposed to be doing is making disciples, not making converts. Making disciples is the calling that Jesus gave us. The church isn't meant to be religious entertainment. Listen, you can get up here and we could play, you know, all kinds of different music. We could have smoke machines. We could have lights. I could do all kinds of crazy illustrations. And I used to do all that kind of stuff in my youth ministry days, right? But what that does is, first off, is it puts pressure on the people up here to become entertainers. And guess who we have to outdo? <laughs> the world. That's pretty hard to outdo the world, right? It's pretty hard to outdo them. The, the church isn't meant to do that. The church is meant to be a countercultural community, something different, forming the souls of people, making disciples that look differently from the world. They look different from the world. So as I was wrestling with all these different things, I began to bounce around the idea of planting a church. I tried with all my might to change this church. If you know me, I don't go down without a fight. I tried to convince them of Reformed theology, couldn't do it. I tried to convince them that the way they were going wasn't right. I tried to convince them that what God was doing out here and what I, what I was learning was the right way to go. They didn't want anything to do with it. So I started saying, okay, fine. You don't want it? Maybe God's calling me to plant a church. Maybe that's what he wants us to do. We, we wanted to be a church that would be serious about God. We wouldn't be religious entertainers, serious about the preaching of the word of God verse by verse, and serious about making disciples for the, glory of the God, for the glory of God and the good of our city. I shared this with my family, and they were like, ah, oh, oh, you sure? I don't know. You sure? Shared this with a good friend, Kevin Ryan. He's a member here. Kevin, eternal optimist, do it, dude. I was like, <laughs> okay, all right. Well, what I did was that next week, I, took a, I had a, about 20 young adults that we took down to Atlanta for a conference, and we served the city down there in Atlanta during a flood, and we, we came back, and I had shared the, the vision with my pastor at the time. I said, listen, I'm willing to stay here and do this until I start this new church. I have no idea. We don't have a name. Like, we don't have any, there's, I don't have a vision yet. All I know is, like, I think God might be leading this. Well, how long do you think it'll be? Maybe he asked me, when do you think you want to do this? Like, Maybe 10 months. This is the first time I'm speaking this out loud. Maybe 10 months from now. All right, all right. Well, you know, seemed optimistic. Took these kids down to Atlanta. I come back on a Monday morning. I see elders' cars in the parking lot. That is not a good sign on a Monday morning. I came in. There was already elders there. I said, oh, this is going to be bad. I walked in and I got fired. And he had gotten some advice from outside counsel that it's better, you know, to rip the band-aid off quickly and all this kind of stuff. And I had a bunch of college kids that were called protégés. They're basically interns. And I walked out of that meeting and they said, what happened? And I said, I just got fired. And they, <laughs> these college kids, what? 
right? And the, we stormed out of there. We went to my house. I, I, there was a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's really knocked my world into a tailspin. I was 30 years old. I felt called to plant a church, but I was totally unprepared for it. The idea itself was only a few weeks old, and now here we are, thrown out into the deep end, fired. We had no name. We had no building. We had no plan. We had no real vision. We had no money, and we basically had no adults, okay? It was me and my parents. It was me and my parents and a bunch of college kids. Future was not looking bright. So what were we going to do? Like, and, and on top of all that, my wife was uh, pregnant with our second child, and now I was out of a job with no severance package, no health care. What were we going to do? Well, we're sitting around my living room, crying, again, gnashing our teeth. And what are we going to do? I don't know what we're going to do. And one of the college kids like, we're going to do it anyways. And listen, you don't have to tell me that twice. I we are going to do it anyways. I don't know how, but we're going to do it. Let's go. And eight days later, we had our first service. Eight days later, we had our first service. And over 150, mostly kids, mostly teenagers, mostly college kids, showed up. Now, that's how we got started. But I knew, see, I, I, I'd gotten saved in a non-denominational church. And then I was a youth pastor at a non-denominational church. And all of these churches lacked any oversight, lacked any denominational oversight. And basically, the pastor could do pretty much whatever he wanted to do. He was pretty much, it was pretty much a CEO model. And I knew that's not what I want to do. I want someone to put me in check. I want someone to hold me accountable. I know that I don't know it all and I need leadership and I need guidance and I need someone to help shepherd my soul. And so what I felt called to do was to be, try to be a part of the Acts 29 network. This is a global network of other church planters. And so I signed up for an Acts 29 boot camp. That boot camp was gonna take place. The closest one was like, Three weeks down the road. So we planted the church. We had our first service. And then three weeks down the road was an Acts 29 boot camp. It's a boot camp is basically an assessment conference. You go in and you meet with three or four other Acts 29 pastors who've already planted the church. Uh, these guys, like I said, they, they, they have a solid theological background. They're good shepherds. They're good elders. Um, they're biblically qualified men and their wives. And you sit down, you and your wife sit down with them and they talk about your plan to plant the church. They talk about your, you've had to answer all these different questionnaires and take all these different tests and they get into your business. And it's just a really intense um, application process. It's actually one of the most intense, if not the most intense of all the church planting uh, apprenticeships, apprenticeships and assessments out there. And so we had this conference, Amanda and I, down in Louisville. And so we hopped on a plane, and we went down there. And when you get there, um, so, hey guys, we only have one service today, so it, it, we're probably going to go long. I'm just going to tell you that because 
uh, we get down there and they're handing out lanyards, all right? Lanyards with your name tags and all of the, the guys getting assessed had black lanyards and all of the already Acts 29 pastors who were assessing had white lanyards, okay? And so we're sitting down for a meal with assessors and assessees and there's this guy sitting next to me and he says, hey, Justin, he looks at my name, hey, Justin, how's, uh, how's it going for you? What's, what's this assessment process look like for you so far and how's the church plant? And I looked at him and I had a black lanyard and he had a black lanyard. And then so I just, oh man, this, this assessment process, I'll tell you what, man, we planted three weeks ago. I didn't really have time to put too much thought into this assessment process, honestly. I was just, you know, kind of going through the motions. I'm planting a church. I, I don't really know what my eschatology is. What does that matter right now? I got to plant a church. He's like, oh, okay, okay. And I said, He's like, well, tell me about the church you're coming from. And I told him all about it, and I did this, and I did that, and then I got fired, and can you believe that? And now, screw those guys. And, and I'm just being honest, right? Being honest. And then they said, you know, would all, the, would all the assessors please stand up so we can pray over you tonight? And this guy with the same colored land you're next to me stands up and looks at me and says, Justin, I thank you for your candor. I'll be assessing you this evening. <laughs> and I was like, no! <laughs> True story. Well, in this assessment, three godly, seasoned, and this guy was one of the first Acts 29 churches to ever plant. He had been, he had been planted, he'd planted eight years before we did. And so he had, he had really thrown himself on the barbed wire so a lot of other people could crawl over the, over the top of his body. He was a great God. Well, these... Acts 29 church planters sat around a table with Amanda and I for three hours discussing our plans to plant the church, discussing our heart, discussing our theology, discussing our, our marriage, our family, our hopes for, and dreams for our city. It was a nerve-wracking and intense conversation. In their words, they left, they come back in, they had watched all my sermons, they had to take entrepreneurial tests. I come, they come back in and they told me, Justin, your entrepreneurial and leadership scores are off the charts, but we're worried about your heart. We know if we throw you in the deep end, you'll swim. We know you can plant a church. We're worried about the type of church you're going to plant. These men, probably for the first time in my life, were more concerned about the state of my soul, the health of my soul, than they were what they could get out of me. Because basically, they could get, most church plant organizations, they want numbers and they want dollars. That's what they want. So you've already got 150 people? Oh yeah, come on in. We want more people, we want more influence. These men cared more about me than they cared about anything like that. And they said, here's what we recommend. We recommend you go home, you shut down the church. I stopped listening right there. <laughs> Ooh, my, my field of vision got really narrow. My ears got clogged. I couldn't hear anything. I had just told 150 people, come on, we're going to plant the best church ever. What's it going to look like? I don't know, but let's go. And they followed me. Many of them had no pastors. Many of them had, I was their only pastor. They had no faith outside of, you know, our youth ministry and our church. And now I got 150 people and this, these men look around at me who barely know me and they say, we think it's best if you shut this thing down. Immediately we're like, no way. 
These are our sheep. I'm the shepherd. I can't just abandon them. They said, Justin, here, we understand that. You can try it. We'll support you if you still want to play. You still want to stay there. We'll come alongside you any way we can. But we think the best thing for you and for your soul and for your family and for your church is actually to get out of where you are, experience real gospel renewal and gospel change under biblically qualified elders, experience the church that you want to build before you try to build it. So we want you to go some, some Acts 29 church and become a church planting resident for two years and then come back if the Lord wills, and plant Sacred City Church. Well, it's not a stretch for me to say that was the most sanctifying conversation that I've ever had. I'm so thankful for that X29 network. I'm so thankful for those men, all of whom that I love to this day and still have a relationship with. They love me enough to tell me, no, don't do what you're doing. Don't plant the church right now. Not, just don't do it yet. But hopefully you see the problem in that scenario. I had already planted the church and I remember getting texts, how's the assessment going? And I'm like, I ain't answering that text. So what happened? Well, it was, not, it was probably, other than, you know, like, should I ask my wife to marry me? This is the most difficult decision I've ever made in my life. Should we close the church down? Well, we did. After much prayer and deliberation, we decided to humble ourselves and take their advice. I said I wanted oversight. I said I wanted somebody that could speak into my life. I said I wanted these things. Okay, now they're speaking into my life and they're telling me what I need to hear, but not what I want to hear. I'm just going to, this is an object lesson. Our feelings lie to us. If you want someone to speak the truth to you, don't ever say, well, I feel. Yeah, your feelings are lying to you. Your feelings want to keep you safe. Your feelings want to keep you comfortable. Your feelings want to keep you worshiping the same idol. So when God brings an elder into your life to say, you're doing it wrong, stop it, change directions, don't say, oh, that hurts. Go, thank you, God. That's what we need. We need correction. We need the wise rebuke. We need that to change our lives. Read the book of Proverbs. It's all over the book of Proverbs. So that I had to go home. And this was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. That Wednesday night, we had a Wednesday night, I had to get up in front of everyone and say, thank you for following me. I'm sorry, we're stopping this. It was awful. There was tears everywhere. I felt like an absolute failure. I felt like a moron. I couldn't believe I'd called all these people. And then I did this. It was horrible. It felt like death. Then we stopped our weekly gathering. I went back to remodeling and doing construction work to support my family. And a few months later, after Amanda had Zoe, we moved. And this is the next kicker. They called me back. I said, all right, I'll do it. We'll, we'll go where you want us to go. And they had given me like Chicago. They had given me St. Louis. And I can't remember, someplace warm, I think. Some, no, someplace cool. It was Denver. I was like, okay. At least I'm going to go someplace cool. And then they called me back and they said, we think you should go to Omaha, Nebraska. The only thing I knew of Omaha, Nebraska were the corn silos that you, you drive by and you see some silos off on your right. And I'm thinking, I'm Omaha, Nebraska? Talk about a step down. I was like, no, I don't want to go to Omaha, Nebraska. But we were like, okay, we're committed to this. We're submitting to their leadership. We're going to do it. So after Amanda had Zoe, we moved to Omaha, Nebraska. Now, our time in Omaha was very 
difficult. We go out there to check things out. Our car back windshield gets smashed in and they steal a bunch of stuff out of our car. Immediately we're, (laughs) this is where you have to be crazy. Because I'm like, that didn't deter me at all. Like, this is what God's called us to do. This is what God's called us to do. Most people be like, I think the Lord might be telling us something. And it was a snowstorm that night. So we came in and there was literally like six, six inches of snow in our car. And I'm like, doesn't change anything. This is where we're going, right? We went, we had two kids. We lived in a third floor apartment. We had to rent out our home here, which caused all kind of issues, you know. It was right after 2008 housing crisis. And so it was very difficult to rent out our house. Always constant financial pressures. We had two kids living in a third bedroom apartment, no elevator. So my wife mostly, two kids, groceries. It was a nightmare. We had no friends. We didn't know a single soul other than the pastor. And it was a very difficult season of our life. No friends, no date nights. Didn't have anybody we could trust with our kids at the time. And I mean, we're in a new city. And it was, you know, as Dickens would say, it was the best of times and it was the worst, of, or it was the worst of times and it was the best of times at the, at the same time. Amanda and I both felt God's nearness for the first time in probably, I think it had been a decade at this point, because right when I was 18, they basically, church put me in leadership. So it was the first time in a decade where I was not in leadership. I could just go to church. I could just read books. I could just study the word of God and I wasn't pouring out constantly. It was also the first time that we had real elders who could speak into our lives and take an active role in our discipleship. It was also the first time we had real deep community that we could go to a missional community. And it was in this spot where our souls both just came alive and thrived. I had time to read and study like never before. and I developed deep friendships and learned how the gospel can shape a person's entire life. I learned really how to be a gospel-centered husband and father. Now, I'm not, gonna be, I'm not being overly dramatic when I say that our time in Omaha changed our lives. It was really hard. Eventually, about six months into it, my wife got tired of seeing me so much, and she literally applied for a job at Whole Foods for me. <laughs> she said, I applied for a job for you at Whole Foods. They should be calling soon. Now, I was doing a full-time residency, and I was like, Really? Okay, she wanted me out of the house, right? We, now, this time, we burned through all of our... She probably that, too. We were burning through our savings, right? We were, it, so she's like, come on, Justin, get up off the couch. Go do something, right? Other than just study and, and prepare. This season changed our lives. It was that time in Omaha, that time in uh, even that working at Whole Foods that I was getting really good at sharing the gospel with unbelievers and outsiders, and people were coming uh, to our church, and it was a really exciting season. God was working on my heart and killing idols. Many if you have talked, you've heard me talk about the wrestler that had to die and God had to put him to death and give me a new identity through the gospel. And it was about eight months into that time there where the elders came to me and said, Justin, it was supposed to be a two-year residency. Eight months in, they said, Justin, we think God's done the work in you that we wanted to see him do. We're ready to send you back. And I was like, I'm not ready to go back. And so, but they affirmed my call right there. They, they got, got, we got approval through Acts 29. And then we began to plan and prepare and I had to raise money and all the stuff for Sacred City Church. And it was about, you know, a year later when we first, we, we started coming back. It was about eight months later, we started coming back to the church. 
But during that second eight months, one of the things that the Lord kept doing in my heart was he kept bringing me back to Acts chapter 2, the text that we read this morning. Every time I thought about Sacred City, he kept bringing me back to this text. And we want, I want you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. It's important that we start in verse 22 and not just in verse 42. Most people start in verse 42. But 42, verses 42 through 47, is a consequence of verses 22 through 36. So verse 22, let me read it. What I... What this is going to show us here, this is the church in its infancy, okay? This is the, I'm going to say the ideal. This is what the church looks like when it focuses on what it's supposed to focus on. Now, I don't want us to think that what we're about to read here is the way everybody's church should feel all the time or everybody's missional community should feel all the time because that's not. This is the ideal. The rest of the New Testament is written for a reason, and that reason is to bring correction for all the ways this goes wrong and this goes poorly and sin screws everything up, okay? But this is what we're shooting for, all right? Let's read it. Men of Israel, Peter preaching here, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. First thing we need to see, God is absolutely sovereign in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He planned it. Do you see that? Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But that does not remove humans from their responsibility. Look at this. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now what I want you to see here, these men were not the ones that nailed the nails, that drove the nails into Jesus' hands. But they watched Jesus live his life, they watched Jesus preach his sermons, and then they watched Jesus get dragged off to a, 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 a phony court, right? And they watched him get wrongly accused, and they watched him get wrongly condemned, and they watched him get wrongly executed, and guess what? Nobody... Tried to do anything. Nobody tried to stop them. They fled from Jesus. So these eyewitness accounts, Peter says, you're accountable for not stepping up. You're accountable for allowing this to happen. Yes, God planned it, but your actions still matter. And what we see, and he's going to keep preaching here. God raised him up, loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it because he was sinless. I'm going to skip down to verse um, 32. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So everybody witnessed Jesus' resurrection. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, look, whom you have crucified. He's saying, you were present when the Son of God, the King of the universe, the Savior of all mankind, was crucified and was resurrected. 
Now, what is their response? Now, they, when they heard this, verse 37, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. The word of God rightly divided, the word of God rightly preached, rightly spoken is a sharp word. It's a word that when it's preached rightly, it goes funk. If it's not preached rightly, it goes You know the word is being preached rightly when it, it cuts to the heart. Now most of us do everything in our power to avoid being cut by the word of God. We are getting really good at dodging verses. Because we don't want to feel bad. We don't want to feel convicted. What I want you to see here is when the gospel is preached appropriately, rightly, it will cut everyone. Because what it says is before God, before the law of God, every single one of us are guilty. And we are the reason Jesus had to die. Jesus had to be crucified, dead, resurrected, because that's how bad we are. We are broken sinners that nothing but the blood of God can save us from our sins. Now, we need to get comfortable. And if you're in this church, if you're going to be in this church for very long, you're going to get comfortable with the word of God going thunk. That's my goal. That's what God's called me to do. The church that comes after this only can be sustained by people who've been cut to the heart. Any other reason you're in community with a church, it's superficial. It won't last Only the word of God that has cut you deep and simultaneously healed you. Really, only the word of God that has killed you and brought you back to life. That's the only thing that will sustain you in community and on mission in the type of church that we're trying to plant here and the type of church that's in the New Testament. So what I want you to see, the first thing we need to know about the church and why we are what we are is it all starts with the gospel. I didn't plant a church. We didn't plant a church. We planted the gospel. We started preaching the gospel. And the gospel, once it's proclaimed, cuts people to the heart and brings them back to life and resurrects them. It's like the gospel being preached plants the seeds in the ground. That's what happens. So what we're actually doing is planting the seed of the gospel In the culture of this city, the Quad Cities, we're trusting the sovereignty of God that he's going to bring dead people to life, that he's going to bring repentance and faith, that he's going to bring people into the gathering. That's what we see right here. The gospel does the work. Listen, it's not the music, though we love the music, we love the band. Joel, Joel, six months into my time in Omaha, I called Joel and said, Joel, hey man, I always like to tell this story. I gave Joel an offer. It wasn't like this. I gave Joel an offer he couldn't refuse. Joel, I know you're Chucky right now at Chuck E. Cheese, but what do you think about being a worship pastor in your future? He's probably thinking it's better than these big old hands. 
So Joel drops what he's doing. He moves out to Omaha and Joel, Joel joins me in my residency in Omaha. And there's three or four other folks that, that were out there with us and moved out there with us as well. But what we see here is it's not the music that, that builds the church. It's not even, you know, a bunch of creativity. It's not a marketing scheme. It's not a, you know, promoting this thing on Facebook and gathering a lot of interest and seeing what everybody wants. What kind of church does everybody want? What kind of music does everybody want? No, no, it's preaching the gospel that goes thud when it hits somebody. And when you preach the gospel like that, God does the work. God brings the dead, the spiritually dead, to life. The power is in the message of the gospel itself. So Peter preaches the gospel. The people believe it. What do we do? Repent and believe the gospel. They actually do that. When the word cuts them, what, you know what's supposed to happen when the word cuts you? You repent. Father, it cuts me because I trust in other things. I trust in my success. I trust in my power. I trust in my wisdom. I trust in my money. I trust in my kids. I trust in all these different things. And so that's why I'm cut right now. So I've turned from that. I trust in you and you alone. So this happens. 3,000 people get saved. Now listen. The Billy Graham gospel stops right there. The surface level gospel of many churches stops right there. People get saved. That's the goal. This is Acts chapter 2, and it, it stops in verse 41. There, guess what? There's five more verses that we need to go on and, and read. Because what happens is salvation is a community-forming event. Salvation isn't just something that happens to individuals. No, you get saved and brought into a community. You get saved into a body. You get saved into a community. You get saved into a family. Look at verse 42, and they, those that got saved, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 2020 revealed some deep cracks in the foundation of the evangelical church at large and even some cracks in our foundation as well. We were not nearly as gospel-centered as we thought we were. We had preached the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, but we hadn't done a very good job of tracing the implications of, the, of that gospel out to different areas. We did not know we assumed that just preaching the gospel, Jesus died for your sins, would be enough to keep communities together. And so those kind of tertiary issues, ah, well, they're not really that important. Well, 2020 revealed how important some of those issues are. We did not know how the gospel applied to things like education and government and politics and law and other social issues. We had not done the hard work of studying the scriptures for guidance when it comes to these. The elders hadn't really taught on these subjects much, much either. We'd spent really the first 10 years of building a gospel-centered community, but we hadn't traced out the implications in those other areas. And so when 2020 hit, missional communities had some 
difficulty staying together, staying gospel-centered. So we decided in 2021 to provide our church with much more biblical teaching. We went back to the basics in our sermon series. We studied the fundamentals of our church. We learned why we do what we do each week in the liturgy. We went all the way back to the Reformation to study our historic roots as a Reformed church that is always reforming according to the Word of God. Those sermons were downloaded over 5,500 times this year. They had over 7,000 views on YouTube and 19,000 views on Facebook. On top of all of that, we released 96 episodes of the Sacred City Life podcast. We felt like we needed more theology. So we started Theology for Everyone, where we are slowly working our way through the Westminster Confession of Faith, learning systematic theology, rooting us in historic Reformed theology. We have went beyond the sermon where we go a little deeper to answer questions about the sermon that we had the day before. and our, We've had our normal episodes where we answer your questions or talk about a subject from a Christian worldview. We talked about tattoos and public education and vaccine mandates and critical race theory and the sin of empathy and how a Christian is to relate to our culture and all kinds of different topics. These podcasts were downloaded over 11,000 times this year. This is what we, we wanted our people to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Not just show up occasionally on Sunday and have a surface level understanding of the gospel. But how does the gospel apply to every area of my life? Porterbrook Quad Cities had their largest enrollment this year. 54 students in year one and 20 students in year two. Here's something interesting. The pastor who fired me 12 years ago enrolled in Porterbrook Quad Cities this year. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. We also hired Pastor Rob to be our discipleship pastor with the singular goal to raise the biblical literacy of our church. The elders are devoted to creating as many opportunities for you to learn the word of God as we possibly can. But it's up to you to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. To be glued to it, to be focused on it, to be excited about it. What I think is happening right now in our society are the Christians who are excited about Jesus and who are focused on loving the Lord with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. They are growing deeper and deeper roots, being prepared for whatever is going to happen in our country. And the Christians who are Christians in word only are fizzling out and watering down and drifting off into secularism. And it's up to you to be as excited about the apostles' teaching, your elders' teaching, the podcast, the sermons, studying the Word of God, as you are about the latest Netflix, Netflix series that's coming out. These people were cut to the heart by the Word of God, were given new life in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and the first thing they did was devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I pray that you would be devoted this year to growing in your identity as a learner. Take
take Porterbrook next year if you're not in Porterbrook. Read more books this year than you did last year. Read your Bible on a consistent daily basis. Read all the way through your Bible. List, download the Dwell app and listen to your Bible as you're going to, on all your chores and doing all your different things in your car. Listen to theological podcasts. Listen to our Sacred City Life podcast. Download the Canon Plus app. I posted it on Realm or Realm last a few days ago. All kinds of stuff on education, all kinds of stuff on politics, all kinds of stuff on government, on, on all kinds of different topics from a Christian worldview. But that's not all they were devoted to. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to a group of people. This is my people. This is my church. This is my family. I'm going to walk with them for as long as the Lord would leave me. And we're not going to be flipping about it. We're going to be consistent. We're going to make it a priority. We're going to put it into our schedule. We're going to get together often. We're going to pray together often. And it's, notice it says the breaking of bread, they're eating together, they're fellowshipping with one another, and the prayers, the prayers, not just praying, talking about liturgy here. Set prayers, most likely the Psalms that they would pray together as a family. This here is the biblical concept of church. It's not a building, it's a people. It's a gospel-centered people living in community and on mission for the glory of God. When you read it, you see it's not that spectacular. It's normal. There's, they're centered, they're held together by strong biblical teaching. Around that is fellowship and food and sacraments and prayer and giving and praising God and leading others to come and know and love our gracious Father. And as they're devoted themselves to teaching, they're eating together, they're praying together, they're worshiping together, they're giving financially in a sacrificial way, the world takes notice and God adds to their number daily those who are being saved. This is why we structure our church around two things, missional communities and this worship gathering. You can't, you, you're not meant to have one without the other. Missional communities are communities of 10 to 30 people who gather together weekly around the gospel. They learn together, they eat together, they pray together, they celebrate together, they share life together, and they live on mission together. Then on Sundays, all of our missional communities gather together to worship God and to have our souls formed through the liturgy, the preaching of the word, and the taking of the Lord's Supper. Ten and a half years ago, my family moved back to the Quad Cities to try out this idea of a gospel-centered missional church. We first started, we had a missional community in my living room, no Sunday gathering. Then we started a closed Sunday night gathering for our members. That MC quickly multiplied and then multiplied again. And on January 1st of 2012, 10 years ago, Six months after moving back to the Quad Cities and starting a missional community, we officially launched our public Sunday gathering right here in the Junior Theater with 69 adults and 20 kids in attendance. Last year, our average Sunday attendance, even after COVID, was 300 and 
27. With 458 worshiping with us on Easter and 560 worshiping with us together on our 10-year celebration. God has continued to build this church even through a pandemic and let us not forget that we are currently living in America's 14th least churched city right now. Quad Cities, 14th least church city in America. When we planted Sacred City, we were told over and over that missional communities don't work in the Midwest. Pastors still tell me, MCs don't work. I can't do that because people are too busy. People are too busy because they worship idols. Call them out on worshiping idols, they won't be as busy. Right. <laughs> well, we don't do them. We don't do missional communities because they work. It's not our strategy for planting a church. We went to the Bible and we said, what does church look like right here? We do missional communities because we think Acts 2 shows us what the church should look like as it operates and as people respond to the gospel. It should be radically giving, radically open, radically hospitable, radically missional. That's why we do what we do. Over the past 10 years, we've grown to a church of 17 missional communities with, congregate, with two congregations, with Pastor Sam leading Sacred City Moline. We have, by the grace of God, we've seen hundreds of disciples made and again, the only way to make disciples is in community and on mission the way Jesus made disciples. But numerical growth isn't our only goal. We want to make disciples, we want to plant churches, and we want to renew our city through the multiplication of missional communities into every neighborhood in the Quad Cities. This year, we estimate that our MCs have provided more than 300 meals to those in need. They've provided over 13,000 man hours serving our city this past year. At $15 an hour, I know you're worth far more than that, but at $15 an hour, that's over $200,000 worth of labor given to serve the needs of the poor, vulnerable, and least of these in our city. $200,000. I often ask myself, would, would our city miss us if we didn't exist? I think they would. They might not know it, but I think they would. We haven't just talked about our ruin, renewing our city. We've been working hard at renewing our city. On top of that, this past year, we gave $84,000 towards church planting. 24,000 of that went to church planting in Kenya through Fishers of Men and 60,000 of that to the, U, to the U.S. We trained three men for gospel ministry. One of those men got to go back home to Kentucky and he's leading an Acts 29 church in Bardstown, Kentucky right now. We trained Alex Tate to, to lead the Sacred City Youth Ministry to new levels in this new year. And we trained Kevin Noer. Kevin became my pastoral assistant, and he's training to be a counselor, a gospel-centered counselor. By the grace of God, we'll be able to hire him as a counselor. We'll have a counselor on staff because one of the needs in our city is for more counselors. There's just not enough of them. So what's next for us? It's been a decent year. It's been a good year. What's next for us? Well, the more that I've prayed about this new year, the more I sense that God is calling us to begin a year of building 
And I mean a few things by that. I mean many things by that. I'm not going to get into all of them. Just got five more minutes here. One, God's called the elders here, and God's called all of us to build up this body of believers. Build us up through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and life on life discipleship in our missional communities. This is one of the reasons why next week we are starting a sermon series going verse by verse through the book of Ezra. If we want to renew a city, then we have got to have a strong, God-centered worship community. When God wanted to to change, to renew a society, he didn't just start with Nehemiah, he started with Ezra. And Ezra's task was rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the worship community. And after that got finished, then Nehemiah could take up his sword in one hand and his shovel in the other hand and start rebuilding the walls and start rebuilding the city. God's called us to build a better city, but first we've got to have a strong God-centered community right here. So I think one, we need to build up this body of Christ. And secondly, this year, this is going to be a big opportunity for us and also a big ask. We're going to have to, we're going to have a lot, of, we're going to have to, all of us are going to, have to be on board for this and we're going to have, you're going to have to be prayerfully involved here. We feel like that the Lord is leading us to seek out a more permanent home here in our city. The Junior Theater has been great to us, but after 10 years of setting up and tearing down, it's time to find a building where we can put down some roots, a home base for us. 2020, obviously, discombobulated us. We, that was out of our hands. The city owns this building. Whenever they feel like we shouldn't meet, they can tell us we can't meet. We want to have some control over that. We also want to have a home base. We also don't want to have to stress out our, and put extra weight on all of our musicians and all of our volunteers setting up and tearing down. Our kid space isn't quite ideal. There's a lot of things we love about this city or this building. Our foyer is almost non-existent. Like, it's, it's not great. Parking at the pool and hiking Mount Everest every week, not great, especially when it's this cold out and it's snowy. Right? We have a lot of reasons we need a new building, and most of you don't know, but I've been searching this past year. I've toured many different buildings this past year. I've been close to buying a couple different buildings this past year, but it's really hard. Why is it really hard? Because we are at such a strange size. We are too big for almost every church building in the Quad Cities that's on the market. COVID killed a lot of dead churches, churches that were, let me see, they were dying and COVID killed them. COVID's going to continue that trend and secularism is going to continue that trend. As a church liberalizes their theology, they begin to die. So it's only a matter of time that many churches in our Quad Cities are going to be dead and their buildings will be available. But most of those churches are too small for us. And so we passed on both of those churches because they were too small. One had some, some land. We got an architect. We built out, some, uh, we built out a, a scheme. We, we, we figured some things out. We got a price. It was, very, it was very expensive. But then that building got bought out from under us. So the Lord is, we're open to whatever the Lord would have for us in this new year. And we're, we're asking you to be, to be praying about it. You're going to hear more about it. We're going to have to uh, raise some money. We're going to have to do some different things. But we're asking and we're hoping that this would be um, a year where we can find a building where we can put down some roots. So would you pray for me and pray for us and pray for the elders that we would be obedient to the Lord's calling this year. This is what we're about. We're not changing anything about our church. Gospel, community, mission. That's why we're here. Make disciples, 
plant churches, renew the city. That's why we're here. And we're asking the Lord to, to help us, you know, spend this year building whatever that is going to mean for us, building our communities, building our missional communities, building up our leaders and finding, Lord willing, a building as well. So would you pray for me and would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for your grace to us. It's just so good to be reminded of how you've been faithful to us. Oh, we are not perfect people. We are a room full of sinners. Uh, the elders are sinners themselves. We have our own issues. We struggle with our own things. We're all leading families and we're all carrying a lot of weight and responsibility. We do not think that we can just walk up to Sinai and you deliver the, the law to us and you de deliver the commandments to us. We humbly submit our plans to you and we say, if they be of you, would you bless them? Would you be uh, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path? Would you uh, confirm our plans? Would you order our steps? Would you lead us by the hand as the good shepherd into 2022? Would your people have a voice to hear or, or would have ears to hear your voice? Would they make it a priority in their daily schedule to read your word, to know more about you, about your nature and your character and your kindness, to know more about your plan of salvation, to know more about what you say about everything. Would we build in our people this year a Christian worldview, Father? Would you help shape us in those ways? And if it be your will, would you bring us a building that would suit the needs of this body? Help us serve our city in a greater way because we, want, we have a long-term, multi-generational, county-over-country vision. It's going to take years and years, decades to build what God's called us to build. And we need a place where we can put down roots uh, to make that happen. So would you do this for us, Lord? And, and now, um, we, we just re be reminded as we come to your table that you are the one that builds this church that you are the ones that, that brings people to faith, that this church rises and falls on Jesus Christ and not on me, not on the elders, not on our faithfulness. This church rises and falls on Jesus Christ, our leader. And so we come this morning to our leader with open hands. This year, we need more grace. And Jesus, we know you have grace for us. We know your mercies are new every single morning. So we open up our hands and the body of Christ is put in our hands and the blood of the new covenant is put in our hands and we eat it and we drink it in worship to you. Would you confirm the work that you've done in our hearts? Would you affirm the work that we want to do in this city and we're planning to do for you this year? In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.